Um, if you have over the last year probably heard or read or had conversations around the whole idea of the future of work, we are talking about this at my office almost every day and as managers kind of strategizing when are people coming back to on-site work all of the time? What does that look like? How do we deal with the culture of our work? And how are we going to retain people and motivate people um, in just a work environment that's just very different? Whatever environment you work in, you know it's, it's just been different over the last couple of years. We've learned some things from that, some things that we'll continue and do in the future. But just for a little bit of context, just so that you know, my job is, and what brought us here from Dallas five years ago, our grandchildren mostly, uh, but I work for the city of Bellevue as, as outreach manager, which means I get to work like all over the place uh, with lots of different departments and kind of hear what's going on and just help people uh, overcome hurdles basically and, and connect and handle crises or help the people that are working on crises at times. So I've read some things about like 51% of people said the majority of, majority of their mental health challenges are focused on work. There are people stressed about coming back. There are people that have really have struggled mental health by not being in contact with their coworkers or not being in contact in person. And I would kind of be in that category. Those first six weeks or so when we were working remotely, uh, those that Monday of every week for about six weeks or eight weeks was just sad for me. Um, I just had to readjust where, what window am I looking out of? Started doing flower arrangements on my desk for myself and, you know, kind of got past that. But I enjoy being at the office. I love the interruption of people. I love the inefficiency of people and just the opportunity to learn and share and grow and all of that. And we've gotten super efficient where we go from 10.59 to, you know, now there's a meeting at 11 o'clock sort of thing. And then the environments that you all work in is very different. You know, it varies by who you work with and, and all of that sort of thing. But I have really had to um, give some thought to, is my view of work healthy? I grew up in a family that work was the ultimate good. Um, my family's view of work was that working hard is not just admirable, but it's the prime indicator of your character. Uh, I grew up with the perspective, um, and now I'm 60, I'm trying to kind of adjust to this. The whole idea of retirement was just something that was uh, verboten in my family. My, it, like if you said somebody was retiring, that was kind of like saying they're going into hospice. It's like they're retiring. Oh, that's so sad. They can't work anymore. Their worth is gone. I'm genuinely not exaggerating. That was the view of work uh, in my family. And I got early and continuous messages that working hard was the best indicator of someone's worth. So kind of working through, what does it mean to work hard and work in ways that are honoring to God? Tommy, if you would put up the slide. Uh, Austin gave me a book a few weeks ago that um, included reference to this that I had never known before. Um, this phrase comes from an, an 1800s German novel. I had no idea that Germans could write novels. That sounds so very frivolous. I never thought that my people would write novels, but it's about work, so it's okay. 
Uh, but what this phrase means is, and, and I've realized my Spanish pronunciation is much better than my German, which is pretty humorous. Uh, Arbecht macht frei means work makes you free. And I really grew up with not a work for your salvation, but work is salvation mentality, that if you can work, you're good with God. So this phrase, work makes you free, was over the entry to most of the work concentration camps in Nazi Germany. And I don't understand, and I don't want to extend the, the analogy too far, but this idea of work makes you free is what I grew up with. And it seems uh, to make sense that the Nazis, in wanting to <laughs> provide motivation or comfort or something, knew the people that they were working with and the idea of you can come in here because you get to work. And so this is a good place because you're going to be able to work. So that idea that work makes you free and that work is salvation is really something that I am, that I am working through. You can take that down, Tommy. It's a little disturbing to me. Uh, there have been broad differences I, as I think about my grandparents and myself, my parents and, and our kids, just kind of how we all chose our professions or our careers. My parents, my grandparents, it was very pragmatic. They had a farm, they had land. So the idea was what assets do we have and how will we best use the land and livestock that we own so that we can survive and pass on a legacy. So what are our assets so that we can survive? And those of you that are about my age, I'm not sure if this was part of your high school experience, but for me, we took a lot of kind of um, analysis about what are you good at. And so then you would have this list of careers of I'm good at this, and so here are the 20 careers, and next to it was here are the salaries for being a teacher or an attorney or whatever. So I very much in high school got the idea that what you're good at will determine what you can do, and then you select what you can do out of what will make you the most money. Does that kind of make sense, those of you that are approximately my age? You chose your career based on what you could do and what will make you the most money. Very much broadly speaking, again, generationally, for our kids' generation who are in their 30s, um, the idea much more is like this. What are your interests and your passions, and how can you make a difference globally? So for my parents, grandparents, is what, is what do you have and how can you survive? My generation, what are you good at that will make the most money? But again, very broadly speaking, for my kids' generation, it's what are your interests, what are your passions, and how are you making, making a difference? All of those have strengths and weaknesses, and if that's the only thing that you do, you are not doing work with God. If you are about surviving, if you are about making money, and if you're about making a difference in your own power, that's not working with, with God. So as I listen to some of my peers and people that I work with and I'm close to, it pushes me to think about why do I do what I do? I love being at work. I mean, I, and I'm not kidding, I'm not exaggerating, I would rather be at work for three hours than watch a movie. I really enjoy being at work the vast majority of the time. Um, and am I doing my work for God or with God? Ben has used this phrase several times over the last year, and I actually changed the title and some of the content of this message because I was convicted by some of the things that Ben shared last week about doing things for God or with God. 
So as we continue in the book of Mark and learning about the upside down kingdom, and I would like for you to consider your work. And by work, what I mean is, it may mean what you do that earns a salary, but it is also your care for your family, for your friends, for your neighbors. Work is service, you know, within the church and in your community volunteering, and probably several other roles that some of you have that I haven't thought of. But work is very much what has God called you to do during this season of your life, and it could be multiple things. So the most helpful thing for me is I kind of recalibrate and think about what is my perspective on work, but how would God want me to think about work is looking at the book of Mark, and this is not exhaustive, but kind of looking at some examples of what Jesus affirmed, what Jesus taught, and what he did with his actions. So from the very first, from the very start of the book of Mark, and is recorded in other gospels, Jesus was very intentional in pursuing people in a variety of spheres, environments, locations, and status, and he frequently interrupted their work and their plans by meeting them at work. And then he used their expertise to inspire and train them. So the environment that they were familiar with, Jesus would reference frequently. So very first, if you want to look at Mark chapter 1, um, Mark chapter 1, verse 16. Soon after Jesus has been baptized and he spent 40 days in the wilderness. I never, I'd never seen this before. It says he was in the wilderness with the wild beasts. I'd never seen that phrase before. It's kind of like the hunger and everything else was enough. There were also wild beasts there as well. So Jesus has been baptized. He, by John the Baptist, uh, his public ministry has begun. He spent 40 days in the wilderness. And it says that he was traveling the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. And he saw brothers Simon and Andrew casting a net into the sea for their fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, so going on with Simon and Andrew and, and Jesus... He saw James and John, who were also fishing, casting their nets. They were, bend, they were uh, mending uh, their nets in the boat. So I kind of get the idea. I assume it may have been friendly, but these were not fisher people who were working together. They're basically competitors. You've got James and John and Simon and Andrew, and they're fishing in the same sea, um, kind of for competing businesses, it would appear. And immediately, Jesus called James and John, and they left their father in the boat with the hired servants. I've spiked your adrenaline just a little bit, like leaving elderly father, but there were hired hands there as well. And they followed Jesus. And as I read through Mark this week, I just didn't realize how many times Jesus and the disciples traveled by boat uh, all around the Holy Land. Um, so Jesus continued to use the assets and the skills that these guys had developed throughout their lives. It wasn't like, you know, you cut off yourself from everything that's happened before as if that wasn't valuable and now you're doing something valuable. Jesus didn't ask them to leave their knowledge and training and assets behind, but he used that number of years that they had invested and what they had invested for his purposes with him. I think it's important to point out Work isn't punishment. And again, as I'm trying to cut away what I grew up with and what Jesus says, that work isn't punishment. Uh, work was part of, of Adam and Eve's life before the fall. 
work was part of paradise. And I just have to think there's a strong possibility that heaven is going to include work as well. Work can be very enjoyable and very uh, purposeful and can give us great satisfaction. In fact, it's clear that with these four folks, their practical skills were extremely valuable in getting around to meet people. But Jesus also frequently taught analogies and lessons that were particularly apt for people based on how they spent their lives and their professions. And the disciples represented kind of a variety of professions. There were, there were the fishermen and there were tax collectors and some of them we don't know their professions, but it, it, was, it was a range of professions. Think as well of, of Jesus teaching the disciples within an environment that, uh, that they were familiar with. Think of Jesus making it possible for Peter, they're out on a boat, Jesus is walking toward the boat and Peter flings himself up out over the edge of a boat and walks toward Jesus in faith. And Peter learns his limitations and he learns about the power of Jesus. And another time the disciples are in a boat, Jesus is sleeping, it's crazy life-threatening storm out on the sea and the disciples are like, Jesus, where are you? What are you going to do? And they learn in an environment that they knew better than any other environment that Jesus is in control here. So Jesus calmed the sea and calmed the disciples while they were with him. Jesus taught them that he is in control even in the environment that they knew best and where they felt most expert. I don't know if this is true for you, but probably at least to some extent, and I may be the extreme in this, but for me, it can be hardest for me to be open in learning in an area where I've got what I feel like is significant knowledge and credibility. Like, this is my thing. I don't know this. Something I've probably mentioned before, if I ever use a number, it's like a placeholder for people that know numbers. It's like, that part of my brain doesn't work. I will always remember your name, but I, won't, I will not remember any numbers whatsoever. So the things that I am best at, or that's kind of like, this is my identity. Heilman is good at this. I'm not very teachable. <laughs> Because it's like, I'm the guy on this thing. So you think about Jesus going and meeting the disciples out in the place that was their thing, out on the water, out fishing. There was a time in, in John 21 that's recounted Jesus going and, and meeting the disciples. Um, and as, as this passage says, just as day was breaking, so all through the night, the disciples have been fishing, Jesus stood on the shore and yet the disciples did not know that it was him. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So he's telling them to pull up their net that's wet and heavy and put it on the other side of the boat. And we're talking maybe 15 feet away. If there's not fish over here, there are not gonna be fish over here. Tells them to drop their net essentially in the same spot, same spot where they've been frustrated all night long, taking ridiculous effort to hoist this net up and out and put it down again. And the passage in John 21 said, so they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Again, this is their environment. This is the thing that they know best is fishing. It's just not a night when we're catching fish. And the nets were full to overflowing such that they weren't able to bring the load back up into the boat. 
and they're starting to realize Jesus doesn't just speak eloquently and mystically and toward the future, but he can control fish. Somehow this guy, not a fisherman, can move literally loads of fish into nets. The thing I know best in comparison to Jesus, I don't know at all. And I think that's a lesson for us as we walk with Jesus, we're going to learn our limitations. Jesus gives incredible visual lessons to learn about him, learn about his world, and also to learn about us, about ourselves. So some of the great value of work, again, going from Jesus calling the fishermen out of the boats, but not selling their boats. Some of the great value of work for the disciples, and I know for me, is that Jesus used their professional skills to serve. He used their own environment to teach them about their limitations, and that happens to me on a weekly basis, and to teach them about his unmatched power. Their limitations and his unmatched power and the opportunity to serve and to be less impressed with themselves and to be open to being shocked every day that they get to work with Jesus. So secondly, uh, from Mark 2, 13 to 17, Jesus went out again beside the sea. Again, there's lots of water. There's lots of fisher stuff happening. And all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, which other places is called Matthew. Saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And Levi rose and followed Jesus. And as Jesus reclined at table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to Jesus' disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, and Jesus heard everything, even things he couldn't audibly hear, Jesus heard everything. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I come not to call the righteous, but sinners. So this is where Jesus maximizes maybe what is many years of relationship of his now disciple Levi. Levi and the opportunity to meet and to love his friends. In the book of Luke, kind of telling a little bit more about the story, it says that this gathering was a very intentional and great banquet hosted by Levi at his house for all of his work colleagues. And they came and they stayed and they listened to Jesus and many of them, I mean, the word many is repeated in each account in each of the gospels. And many began to follow Jesus. Levi is who I want to be. If I can be Levi, that fits me. Um, Levi used and had credibility utilized, not used, but had credibility in his relationships with people. That when he became a Christian and started following Jesus, the people that knew him best and people that were new, known in the society as having opportunity to cheat people out of, out of money and really gain wealth to themselves by cheating, saw this guy as different. If this is who Levi is when he is with Jesus, we want to learn about Jesus. That's who I want to be. I want to be like, like, like Levi. I want to be very clear uh, when we go to work, whatever work it is, but particularly the work that we do that we're paid by someone else, we're paid to complete a work plan. Um, and that work is not our personal platform. 
Uh, we're not hired to evangelize. Uh, we're not paid to scold or corner or exploit or waste time. But like Levi, we have lots of time with people from whom we can learn and with whom we can develop relationships that can lead to mutual trust and possibly sharing our faith. I've learned a lot from work. I've learned a lot from colleagues at work who aren't Christians. I've learned a lot through my training at work and some that I initially disagreed with and some that I continue to disagree with, but I have learned about people and developed relationships that have not just been a platform for me to do things, but for me to learn things as well. And this is what I love most about work is the relationships, the amazing and to me no longer surprising opportunities that God gives to learn from my colleagues, to serve them and to serve with them. So I wanna tell you about three people. I'm gonna to try to be fairly brief in this because all of them have quite a bit of story. I'm gonna tell you about John, Johnny, and Juan. Uh, 1981, I was a freshman in college uh, in Kansas City, and I worked as a nurse's aide at Kansas University Medical Center. If it paid better and didn't involve numbers and medication, I should have been a nurse. Because that just, I loved being there. I just, I would work back-to-back -back shifts just because I loved being there so much. Um, it was a pretty dynamic environment. We had a lot of people that came from the state penitentiary, came from the state mental hospital. Uh, whenever we had somebody coming from Osawatomi, it's like, this is gonna be complicated. Um, it was the first time uh, as an adult I had seen someone die and kind of read through their chart and see someone die by themselves without their estranged family. But there was one guy, John Siski. This is pre-HIPAA, so I can tell you anything. Uh, John Siski was probably about 80 years old, had throat cancer, and for whatever reason, I think it's kind of, you know, medical funding at the time, people would be with us like for two or three weeks or a month or a month and a half. So you got to know these people, you know, pretty well. So John had terminal throat cancer, and he was just emotionally going down, and he had been very bright and upbeat, and he was just kind of spiraling, and Lots of times I was there like at three o'clock in the morning. So you knew if people were you know, watching TV or, or crying or struggling. And it's been a while back. It's been 41 years ago. So I don't remember all of the details, but it came about that, you know, he expressed what he was feeling as he is coming to the end of his life. And I remember reading through with him John 10. And I'm not sure. I think John was a Christian. But I remember that he really connected with, I think it's John 10, 31, that says that Jesus uh, calls us and no one can pluck us out of his hand. That seemed to really connect with John. So I gave him my little blue pocket Bible with impossibly small font. I'm sure he couldn't read it. Now, as I kind of reflect on being an older person myself, a couple days later, I went back and we each had kind of a, you know, a cubicle where you would keep you know, your belongings and stuff. And as I got to KU Med at 2.45 in the afternoon, in my cubicle was uh, my little blue Bible. And John had passed away overnight. That was kind of my first glimpse of what can happen at work and how God could use me with who I am and really a pretty immature 19-year-old at that point. But that the possibility and the wonder of what can happen at work really stuck with me. John Siski has kind of altered and shaped my life and the way that I view work. 
Uh, second is Johnny. I've had a variety of jobs. I mean, absurdly enough, I was a security guard <laughs> one year in college, uh, which makes no sense whatsoever. Um, but one of the jobs I had um, was I worked at Cedars Youth Services in Lincoln, Nebraska. And we worked with foster parents and, and just families and kids that were in crisis. But one of my jobs on the weekend was to take kids back to their foster parents. And there was a family of four kids, eight, six, four, and two, and Johnny was the oldest at age eight. And it was December uh, 2009, and I had the radio on, and Johnny, for whatever reason, was just kind of like, I like that song. Can you play it again? It's like, no, I can't play it again. He said, well, well, can you sing it? And come to realize, as, as he's kind of talking and asking me to, to sing, that he had never heard Christmas songs before, ever. It was a really challenged family, and not... I mean, not knowing Christmas carols was the least of their challenges. But it took, so each of these four kids were in different foster homes. And it took me about an hour and 45 minutes to deliver each of them. And Johnny was the last. And so I, just at Johnny's prompting, I just sang Christmas carols for an hour and 45 minutes. And at some point, the two-year-old in the back seat starts to get fussy, as, you know, two-year-olds should be as they're driving around for hours. And Johnny said, I remember it just as clear as can be. It's like, shh, shh, Mr. Mark is singing. Like, it was good, <laughs> and it wasn't. But there was just something about having contact and relationship with these kids that were in absolute crisis, and their families were just a mess. But there was something that was just, a, just so peaceful about driving around in the dark on a Sunday night around the outskirts of Lincoln, Nebraska, um, singing Christmas carols. And there was one, what is it? Oh, Holy Night, that he, they wanted me to sing like three times. And he's like, I really like that. Oh, I really like that one. Sing that again. And I kind of thought through, so if Johnny was, was eight in 2009, he's 20 years old now. He likely doesn't remember that, but it just seemed like two hours of peace for kids that really, really needed it. And then finally, my, my friend Juan, uh, he and I worked at ACH Child and Family Services in, in Fort Worth. Um, I did intensive family preservation, and Juan and another, another friend of ours, Jesse, did uh, street outreach. So kids, adults, children, whoever that were on the street that were homeless, Jesse and Juan would get call from the police or from residents saying, there's somebody that's homeless, you need to go help them. And uh, so Juan was somebody that all of us that were Christians felt like someday Juan's going to become a Christian, but kind of think it's going to be like decades from now because he was a resolute, very committed atheist and kind of introduced himself that way. We had a lot of conversations, um, some assumptions that he made about me that I was able to correct and kind of you know, broaden his view and stuff. But after I left ACH, about a month later, I got a phone call from Juan, a text from Juan. And he said, uh, can we get together for lunch? I've got news. And it's like, great. Yeah, I'm glad to do that. I have no idea what the news is. So we sit down to eat. And um, he said, this time I'm going to pray. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. What? And so he's praying. Juan, the atheist, is praying at Yucatan Tacos. Juan is praying. And so he says amen and looks up and he's like, I became a Christian a couple weeks ago. <laughs> like, oh my goodness, Juan, just tell me what happened. And 
as he explained it to me, uh, he went to pick up, this is a few years back, so I'm, some of the date tells I'm a little off on, but the most important things I've got. He went and picked up a woman uh, that was homeless that was on the street, and he said, when she got in the car, I just felt evil. And this woman was, was Wiccan, and just the things that she said and the way she presented herself just convinced me that evil is real. And when I got home, I just had to process, if evil is real and I want there to be good, how does that happen? And all of this stuff that I've heard about the Bible, I need to dig into. So I think, if I remember correctly, over the weekend, he read the book of John like four times and became a Christian at his apartment by himself. And then a couple weeks later, we had lunch and he told me about that. That is what I love about work. And I can, honestly, I could go on and on of the whatever, 11, 12 jobs that I've had. There's been something fascinating or something that start to be fascinating about people that God has been doing in them and, and with me for me to, to be able to see what God is doing. Again, I can go on many, many stories of just people from different jobs that are still friends, people from different jobs that have lived with us for a period of time and will be lifelong friends. And same for Diana. So uh, Mark chapter six, another environment. Mark chapter six, and this is one that very much inspires me in, in the job that I, that I have now. But Mark six, 19 and 20 Herodias is the wife of Herod. They're just, they're in a marriage that shouldn't have happened. It was immoral. Herodias had a grudge against John the Baptist, John, or Mark 6, 19, and wanted to put John to death, but she could not. For Herod, her husband, the governor, feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept John safe. When Herod heard John, he was greatly perplexed, and yet Herod heard John gladly. This is something that I take into my work now of just the opportunity, the responsibility to be somebody that lives a clean life, probably perplexing to somebody, to many people. But John had this opportunity to, to speak to power, to speak to a system, to speak to an immoral man, and God gave him the power as, as John was at work with God that Herod continually wanted to hear John because he was fascinated. He heard him gladly. And I guess that's part of, you know, people have different roles. Some people are very blunt, very pointed, and they just have to say this. I think how God has gifted me um, has been to be more subtle, to develop relationship, and hopefully that people will hear me gladly when I am doing right and when they are listening to God. There is an opportunity wherever God has placed you in your office, in your family that you enjoy, in the family that confounds you with both your wonderful and your goofy neighbors, with friends that you may have had for decades or somebody that you're going to meet tomorrow to be righteous and winsome and to be heard gladly. Because you're in relationship with the eternal God who wired and educated and placed you for such a time with such a people as this, both to learn and to serve. So I'm 60, and so I can say this now. Those of us that are of retirement or approaching retirement age, I am very much convinced that some of our hardest, most challenging, most rewarding, most eternal work may be in the balance of our years. 
It may be something in serving our parents. It may be our neighbors. It may be somebody that we don't know yet. It may be providing a parenting role to our grandchildren or somebody that we're in a grandparenting role to. But the idea of kind of having 20 years where we don't do anything confuses me and I think is anti-biblical because I believe we're going to be very active in eternity. So to kind of have me time without thinking, God, how do you want to use me in ways that fit me or may stretch me, I don't think is of God. And it's a very American concept that I have earned my golden years. So Mark 4, by slightly offensive, I did the right thing. Well done. Because we got to push this. We cannot check out as we get older when we have some of our greatest worth. Uh, Mark 4, verse 26, 29, kind of wrapping up here. Uh, Jesus taught with work visuals and his audience would see almost every day and remember his instruction and encouragement. And here in, in Mark 4, 26, uh, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man would scatter seed on the ground. And this is a visual folks would see every day. And the man sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows and he knows not how. And the earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So kind of touching on the experience of farmers and people that planted, Jesus said, you know, some of my most important work is going to be confounding to you because I do it. <laughs> kind of like you can't really explain how plants come out of the ground and produce what I do in redeeming people, you can't fully understand because I'm working in their hearts, but you get a role with me. You get a responsibility to, to sometimes harvest, sometimes to plant, sometimes to water, but it's the Spirit of God that does the work mysteriously in somebody else's life. People, people coming to Christ is mysterious and miraculous. Heart change doesn't happen by our cleverness or repeatable strategy. Redemption is an amazing work between a person and God. But we do have a role, and God will show you what your responsibility is, whether it's in a paying job or volunteering or serving someone. At times, your service to God will fit what you love and just can do almost instinctively and do easily. At other times, he will stretch you. He'll stretch your faith and willingness way beyond your capacity or your strength, but he will use you to love and to serve. So kind of in summary here, looking mostly at the book of Mark, our skills are valuable, and they're not just to earn money. At work and working and serving, whatever that is, we learn a lot about our limitations. God puts relationships in our lives for an eternal purpose. He allows us the opportunity to influence systems and power and he allows us to be partner in something that's mysterious, the changing of someone's heart that we can't make happen, but the Spirit of God does. So I sent out a note to, to several folks, and then Sarah's going to come up in a minute, just asking some folks in our body, how is God with you in your work? How do you serve him and others through your work? And is there a verse that guides your work principles? So I heard back from several folks. First from Lauren. Uh, I feel like my work is most true, most healing when I simply reflect a God who sees. God is a counselor and healer, and my work includes counsel and healing. 
But at the center of it, I hope before all else, I'm privileged to be one who witnesses another, reflecting the fact that in all my life, God sees and knows. I also get great joy in bringing good news to clients and saying, nope, that's not, that's normal, you're not alone. I feel God's confirmation and presence in my work in these ways. And John Zeger said, as a lawyer, I have often reflected on Micah 6.8 as a kind of guiding verse, both for work and for life. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. As I have advanced in my career, I have become increasingly convinced that the primary way that I can serve God at work is by seeing the people around me as whole people, by caring for them as complete individuals, and by interacting with them with humility and kindness. I fail to do those things often, but they have been my North Star, and when I do them, I see his favor on me and on the, those that I work with. And someone else that responded asked their name not be uh, mentioned, but how is God with you in your work? God's word says in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God is with me wherever I go, including at my workplace. How do you serve him and others through your work? I believe that God has a plan and purpose for me to be in this workplace. I pray for my coworkers and find opportunities to show them the love of God and tell them about marvelous things that God has done for me. Is there a verse that guides your work principles? And whatever you do from Colossians 3.23, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward, the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. And then Diana has the verse Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I think that I can rightly also say I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I work. Yet not I, but Christ works in me and the work I now do, I do by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then finally from Rachel, working in special education, I work to help create perspective, metanoia, about people with disabilities and undue ableist views about what people can and can't do every day. I think this work matches well with God's perspective to love the least of these as well as to seek justice in this world. I rely on the Spirit to help me listen and learn from the people I work with. That inward knowing rather than speaking in words is so important for people who communicate differently. I think I'm most guided by the song, Little Things with Great Love, which says, this you, God, have asked of us, do little things with great love, and reminds us, at the table of our Savior, no mouth will go unfed. His children in the shadows stream in and raise their heads. Oh, give us ears to hear them and give us eyes to see, for there is one who loves them. I am his hands and feet. And then Sarah, if you want to come up, Sarah's going to share with us as well. Thank you. Good morning. Um, so as Mark asked me to speak, I was kind of thinking, what even is my job? Um, 
As many of you know, I am a stay-at-home mama to four kids, and we homeschool. Um, and there are a lot of job titles that could be applied to what I do, like stay-at-home mom, never really felt like a fit, or housewife, but I'm not married to the house, I'm married to my husband, that's confusing. Um, homeschool mom doesn't really feel like it fits the whole identity. Um, and as for a long time after I quit my job as a fifth grade teacher to be a stay-at-home mom, I really struggled with my identity of who am I, what am I doing, what is my job, like I'm just changing diapers. Um, and it can be really easy to feel like I was just spinning my wheels. Um, so one year for Christmas, as a little bit of a joke between me and Austin, Austin made me some business cards that say I'm the headmistress for the Dean Academy for the Gifted. Uh, which felt great. Uh, it's our old address, so these are collector's items now. If you want one, come and ask me. Um, so those are pretty fun, but it still wasn't, it doesn't feel like it fully sums up what I actually do. Um, so the title is a work in progress, but what I do and what we are all called to is intentional, intensive discipleship. The passage in scripture that guides me is Deuteronomy 4, sorry, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. The Lord knew that for our children and for the people we encounter to really come to know him, they must experience him as a lifestyle, modeled morning, noon, and night. Jesus has invited me into a job where I get to model his love and goodness for our kids all day, every day, in my pajamas, at bedtime, and when I'm sick. We all had the stomach flu this week. Um, and we see that in the book of Mark. As Ben has mentioned many times, Jesus lived with his disciples. He traveled with them. They saw him when he was tired and maybe grumpy. Going back to job titles, homemaker is perhaps the term that I think fits the best. Kind of comes with some baggage, but I, I think that perhaps fits the best. It's driven by one of my core uh, ideas one of the core ideas that home, the home is a really good place to encounter Jesus. My hope is to create a place where my children, my husband, my family, and anybody else who comes into our home can have the opportunity to encounter and experience the goodness of God. We know that our God is a God who invites us to taste and see and experience that he's good. So as a small example, a couple, about a year and a half ago, the Lord invited me, inspired me to have what we call, for lack of better term, fancy dinner. And we put out a cloth, tablecloth, which we never use, and we pull out our red china, and we use it, and we light some candles, and we have whatever regular dinner we were going to have that night. But And we play some classical music, and all of this feels a little crazy with toddlers, right? But setting the scene 
lighting the candles, dimming the lights, having the real plates instead of the plastic ones. There's something about it that as we sit there, we have just a moment where the kids feel like we have encountered something powerful and something special that we can show them Jesus. And we read a Bible passage or we share a story of a faithful servant of the Lord and something about that experience of beauty opens their minds and their hearts for just a moment to kind of sneak that in. And before anybody starts thinking that our house is a peaceful wonderland or that I've got it all handled, <laughs> false. Um, you better believe that when it's 8 a.m. and I'm still barely awake and in pajamas and there's a kid with a potty accident over there and another kid who has frisbeed their bowl of cereal across the room, uh, or when it's 9 a.m. and this lesson for homeschool is not going great and I hear the school bus pull up to the corner <laughs> and think, oh, it'd be so easy. Um, or when it's 5 p.m. and everybody's screaming and the house is a mess and dinner's burning on the stove, you better believe I'm questioning a lot of my life choices in those moments. <laughs> but in those moments, like Mark was talking about, Jesus meets me. He walks into my kitchen and he reminds me that what I do matters. He's asked me to steward little souls, to grab their chubby, sticky little hands and walk them to Jesus. There was a time a few years ago that one of our kids had a really big bathroom accident. Um, a multiple bath towel cleanup, if you will. I'll spare you the details. Um, and I was on my hands and knees trying to clean up this mess and questioning, why me? Why am I here? What am I doing? I could go and make money and not have to deal with this. And, and in that moment, Jesus grabbed my soul and he said to me, Sarah, do you see this mess? Do you see how stinky it is, how gross it is? This mess is sort of like your sin. You were swimming in it. You were stuck in it. You couldn't get out. And I rescued you. I saved you because I loved you. And you get to show that same love to your children. And that's why you're here. And he invited me to embrace it with joy instead of dragging this invitation around begrudgingly. I believe that Jesus can encounter anyone anywhere. And he wants to, whether you're cleaning up stuff off the bathroom floor or working with a coworker. In all the craziness of our home, my heart and my hope has always been that I can create a place where whoever enters it can have the opportunity to experience the love and the goodness of God. Jesus has invited me to step into this crazy calling of walking alongside four rambunctious, messy kids <laughs> and doing my best to model the love and the goodness of God and to craft our home into a space where we believe anyone can encounter Jesus. Thanks for letting me share, Mark. Thank you, Sarah, very, very much. Appreciate that. You know, we're all different from each other. Um, kind of what my calling is isn't your calling. What Sarah's calling is isn't the calling for everybody, except that we're to be at work with God. That's true for all of us, no matter what age or stage we are at in life. I'm going to finish up with Mark uh, 16. We're going to go from the first chapter of Mark to the final chapter of Mark. Mark 16, 19. Jesus has said to the disciples, you know, there are other people that believe that I rose from the dead before you did. And you need to kind of have some adjustment in what you believe. And Jesus finishes the book with this. Go into all the world and preach the good news to all, to all creation. And the good news is they actually saw the risen Savior face to face. 
So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And hear this phrase. While the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by many accompanying signs. The Lord worked with them. He's willing to be and desires to be with us. Whatever your work or service or volunteering is, it works if it's with him. It's frustration if it's on your own. Even if it's something that you're good at, it will not lead to something great. So at work, we are able to develop our skills. We learn our limitations. We develop new relationships. We have potential for influence. And we can get to see the mystery of redemption. I want to mention one last thing. Uh, Lauren has out at one of the tables uh, this book that y'all had had a few years ago called I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. So if you want to pick one of those up, they're free, I assume, um, out, in the, out in the foyer. But thank you for being with us and being able to discuss. And then Tommy and the guys are kind of come and lead us as we take communion together. Take that as you would like to as we sing and worship together, but let's, let's close this portion in prayer. God, thank you that you have brought people together here and churches around the world uh, in small groups and big groups to be reminded that work is good when it's from you and work is eternal when it's with you. So I pray for each of us this week that the people that you bring into our lives, that we would have a view um, that honors you and is an eternal view, whether it's people we know well or people we're meeting for the first time, that we would be with you um, in our work and in our service. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.